You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, we are back. It is a, it's a new recording day. We have lots of wonderful guests today that you have scheduled. And as always, thank you for doing that. I don't thank you on air enough, but uh, thanks for wrangling the cats for me. Ah, shucks. Torrent nothing. I'm just excited <laughs> that the, the next episode that we record, which is going to have three guests, this time shouldn't kill you. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, because now, now Zencaster is actually built to potentially have five people at once. Uh, Ten, just, but don't push it. Oh, Oh, well, you shouldn't have told me that. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to hit a critical role or something. So, oh God. <laughs> all right. So I, I dare you. It, oh, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You should not have done <laughs> I that. I dare you to all get right. critical role on here. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm a, I'm a try. You know, you know that I worked real, real hard on They Might Be Giants for a while, though. Yeah, and I made I know. weird discoveries about how their whole publicist <laughs> architecture works, which is a journey and a half, I must say. Um, fortunately though, our current guest is just a breeze to talk to. And so that is a wonderful relief, uh, especially because this, this kind of, for me, hits a couple of sweet spots. You know that I love novellas, but like novellas are like one of my kind of cuddle texts when I'm like, must read a thing. Wait, brain keeps wanting to quit after a hundred pages. Um, and so the, the novella is like the completionist in me finally kind of receiving a, a kiss from genre. And uh, this particular novella actually isn't even out yet. So we get to sort of spice the hype here. This is Moses Ose Otomi. And you are with us because The Lies of the Ajungo are, is going to be coming out on March 21st, right? So yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Um, glad to be here. This is exciting. This is really cool. And novellas are All my right. comfort read too. So we're on the same page. Awesome. It's, it's so, interesting because uh, because uh, a kiss from a genre was the original title to Seal's hit <laughs> hit song. It was. It was kind of. It's kind of weird. Uh, but it um, just didn't. It didn't test well with audiences. Mm -mm. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Although honestly, Seal could like do a song where he's just like making a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and I'd be like, "It's cool. I can do this." That's fine. It's very true. I'll dance this at a middle school dance. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Literally did actually the whole kiss from the rose thing, but that's, that's all that's, I'm just dating myself right there. He has so a, we haven't had, sorry, no, we're ahead. talking about sorry. seal. I have two seal stories. One, yeah, I met seal. him in an airport in Bangkok. Very <gasps> weird. Very okay. random. I, so when I say okay. met, I don't get starstruck very easily. I'm not impressed by these people. Mm -hmm. He's very impressive. I didn't want to approach him. He has an aura and a presence that was intimidating. And then um, he also has like a song on Andy Samberg's like pop star movie. Have you ever guys seen that? He's basically oh God, like no. singing about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Not literally, but it's like a fake song <laughs> and he's it's incredible. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And he's, he's nuts. Anyway. I had never he, imagined when I started going on that spiel that that was going to actually have a lot of any things. relationship to reality, and now my mind is just blown. I'm going to be useless all day. <laughs> yeah, I've I've always I've always enjoyed Seal and and his music, and it's he's one of those he's one of those that's like I had this really huge hit thanks to the Batman movie, mm -hmm. uh, and would you people please like let me sing some other songs. <laughs> I, you do start feeling those, a little yeah. bad for the lack of love for the rest of the catalog. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't do the Bobby McFerrin thing. He didn't say, "I'm never doing that song again, ever." True. Mm. Uh, he will do it. Yeah. But he's he's also like he's like I've got a lot of other songs. He was also married to Heidi Klum, so I don't have Which, I don't have a lot of. He's fine. 
I have no sympathy yeah. for that man. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be just yeah. fine, even yeah. in even in the post Heidi era. Yeah, his life is okay. <laughs> Pharrell Williams is really like the new Bobby McFerrin. That's kind of what's Ooh, what's happened there. Hot take. I get, yeah, well, I mean, it's not that hot. Pharrell Williams was very six years ago, but it's kind of okay. like a lukewarm take at this point. It's it's cold product. But I I just right. I just think it's funny that out there in the world, uh, uh, you know, TikTok has become this huge thing, and somewhere out in the world, Millie Vanilli's going <laughs> right. Oh no! Before their time. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I I do not want to sleep on the opportunity to talk to you about your book here. So I'm, I'm here to talk about Seal. So. <laughs> oh okay. Well then, um, surprise! I wanted to talk about a book, but we can do both. So <laughs> so I want it like the the pitch for and the world building for the lies of the Ajungo is really rich and engaging. And like what Patrick was mentioning in the beginning that like my job in our, in our terrible twosome here is to book guests. And so when I read about the book, I was like, I, I have to, I have to talk about this. Like I want to see what the story is. So, all right. Tell folks, tell folks how, tell folks why I fell in love. Uh, what is the lies of the Ajungo? <laughs> so the lies of the Ajungo is a Saharan inspired fantasy novella. Um, the, the overall story is it takes place in a world where they have these multi-generational droughts. So in this city, there hasn't been water for hundreds of years at this point. And so the ruler of the city makes a deal with another empire that has water and says, we would like some water. What do you need in exchange? Uh, the other empire are a bunch of scumbags. So they say, we would like the tons of all your citizens. It's a pretty brutal price for water. But when you're dehydrated and dying, you don't have a lot of options. So they pay it. Uh, because they are scumbags, they only give them enough water to barely survive. So it has to become an annual tradition where every time somebody becomes a citizen, which is age 13, they have their tongue cut out, sent off to this empire in exchange for some rations of water. So the story opens on this little boy named Tutu, and he is about to turn 13. He's on the cusp of his cutting when his mother passes out from dehydration. And there's not a lot of options to get water at that point, so he goes to the city's current ruler, and he says... I will go beyond the city walls. I will walk and traverse this endless desert full of monsters and the the empire that betrayed us, the Ajungo. And I will find water for my mother and for the entire city. You just have to keep my mother alive until I get back. And so that's where the novel kicks off. And it's about Tutu's adventure in what is called the Forever Desert. I, there's like a million things I love about that. <laughs> but I kind of want to lean into Tutu being, I think, part of this rising phenomenon of writers who want to tell the stories of young people going on their own adventures, but aren't interested in necessary sort of necessarily playing by like the rule book or the genre expectations of sort of a YA narrative. Yeah. Like there's, there's a desire to allow those characters to break free from love triangle tropes or from, um, you know, appointed savior tropes or, or things of that nature. Or, and I, or being I like, groomed by 500-year-old vampires. <laughs> or being right. groomed by 500-year-old vampires and so on and so on. And so I like the fact that uh, Tutu chooses for himself. This There's no sort of like ceremony where we had a vision and Tutu will be the one to go forth and do this. It is this, there's this like owning of... I won't even say the opportunity. This isn't an opportunity, but like this owning of the burden. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I, I think maybe there's two main reasons for at least me, then 
I don't know how much that influences the general kind of trend we're seeing, but um, one is that I grew up kind of before the distinction of YA. I'm not that old. I'm, pre- I'm I think I'm pretty young, but like there wasn't always really a dedicated YA category in the same way that it exists now. So the books I was reading growing up, I just read whatever I saw and liked. You know, it wasn't like, oh, you're 12. This is the book for you. You know, so um, that distinction still hasn't fully settled in my brain in terms of like what is what should be YA versus what should be adult. Um, mm-hmm. also like I, I still, because I'm not, I don't know, I'm not too old yet. Like I still remember what it's like to be a young adult. You don't feel like a young adult. You don't know you're a young adult. You feel like you're a person, you know, living a life and your life is just as complicated and sophisticated as your parents, as far as you know, right. Your life mm-hmm. has just as much meaning and just as much struggle. And those struggles don't feel petty or insignificant to you. They might to the world in some ways and to broader culture, but to you, they don't. And so it, it's not a stretch in my mind to see young people take on burdens and struggle and suffer and make sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, this kind of, so my husband and I, we have two kids. We have a 15 year old and 11 year old. And a few years ago, I remember really vividly, not what it was that provoked this conversation, but this conversation that I had with my husband. Kids have been doing something where they were just being very dramatic about the the horrible burdens of their lives yeah. at, oh, I don't know, probably like, you know, 12 and 8 at that point or whatever Oh my God, that's not true. You always say that. <laughs> right. So, and so I, I you know, went in the bedroom and closed the door and just started going off on Husbeast about these kids, man, mm-hmm. and like all of all of their drama and like they're really seriously acting like they have the hardest lives ever. And he looked up from whatever it was he was doing and he says to me, it's a hard thing because we know that their lives do look different than ours and do have lots of different responsibilities to them. But right now, today, if they're feeling stressed, it's the most stressed they've ever felt before in their I, lives. Yeah. And like, and that is still real for mm-hmm. them. And like, even if it is a stress that we have survived through and we know how to get through or whatnot, this moment right now is the most that they've ever been through. Right. This thing that is hard for them. And it was this serious mindfuck moment for me. And I was a little <laughs> embarrassed because I am a high school teacher and mm. probably I should have thought about that at some point. I don't know in the last 15 years. Um, <laughs> But it did sort of shake me a little bit to be like, okay, all right. So if you're facing something that is deeply stressful or traumatic or, or it's a pressure and you're 12 or you're 13 or you're whatever, it really is the biggest thing you've ever right. faced before. Even if the adults around you are like, oh, baby, you know, there's a hundred fish in the sea. Just go and right. just go date somebody else. <laughs> this breakup isn't a thing yeah. or, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that you're kind of honoring that. Yeah, I think well, I used to teach as well. And I will be honest, I also didn't have that insight working with middle school and high schoolers. It wasn't until I worked with really, really small kids, three-year-olds, that I realized that is that it's kind of like, I don't know, was it a comic or like a fake story or something about like Superman's first experience with pain after kryptonite and how like even a paper cut would feel like a gunshot wound to him because he's never felt pain before. He has never experienced the sensation of physical pain. So I remember thinking and seeing these little three-year-olds and how easily frustrated they would get. And I was like, yeah, of course, of course, this is, this is the most, you're, you're three, like 30 seconds is like 10% of your lifespan. <laughs> You've been frustrated yeah, for an entire 10 point. minutes. That's extremely you know, difficult for you. Um, and, and yeah. And I try to act that empathy out in the stories I have with younger protagonists. Yeah. 
I guess, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a, there's a little bit of, like, necessity here as well, because obviously Tutu loves his mother, but, like, Tutu himself is on the cusp of this cutting that will maim him forever. Right. Literally sort of rob him of his voice as he understands it. Mm. Um, and, and so in that sense, he's kind of going forth to be a voice for an entire an entire culture of peoples who have yeah. been, you know, literally and figuratively stripped of the ability to sort of argue for themselves. Right. In, in this book, um, people who are not yet citizens, people under 13 and still have their tongues are called speakers for that reason. They are, they are the voice. Um, this isn't a spoiler. This all happens very early on in the first like three pages. <laughs> but um, yeah, historically, that's what this city had tried to do. They'd sent out young children because they could still speak. And they said, try to find water, try to find somebody who can help us. Um, it was unsuccessful. These kids never returned. And so Tutu's journey is is not the first it's uh important in its own way that the story reveals but yeah it makes sense that it and i think you know metaphor blah 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 but like you know in some way young people are they are an important voice for a culture they you know in a lot of ways they're the canary in the coal mine on social issues like they, they have such an important function um that i yeah that i'm drawn to kind of putting them in these positions and i think also like the fact that they are often unprepared is very, it it has a lot of dramatic meaning and it it can create a lot of interesting moments where, you know, children are just, young people are incredible that they, they're sponges, they learn quick, but they're often uh, thrown into tasks they're not ready for. And I think dramatically, that's just, there's a lot of tension there inherently built in. And I got it. Like, Okay, I'm a, I pro- we promised in the green room that we don't do like the Oprah and Barbara Walters type questions here. But this just came to me, man, and I'm gonna go here, and you can you can hit the cancel button or something if you if you want to. But I have to imagine that at some level, as a Nigerian American, where your your identity itself and like your background itself is a combination of places and spaces and and cultures and voices that the idea of a young person being sort of forced to act as an intermediary between two worlds has to feel a little familiar to you. Like that has to come from someplace that you've in a sense been to. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's really, I think, yeah, any, any first generation child or anyone who's kind of had to exist between cultures in some way, yeah, that navigation is is one of the fundamental ways in which I identify. It's one of the, I think, the fundamental uh, building blocks of my life, having to see the experience of my parents as immigrants and having to see the experience of my friends and the country around me as, as in some sense, a native, right, of, of the United States where I grew up. So, yeah, that line is, it's again, it's fraught with meaning and fraught with tension. And I wanted to... And I think, honestly, in probably all of my writing to some extent, and most writing in general, but I, I do think most of my characters I ever write will have to navigate that boundary in some way of a system, two systems that are supposed to make sense to them that, they, that neither quite fully does. And, and the other way around, too, two systems in which they're wholly enculturated that are at odds with each other. Um, that's, all of that is super interesting to me. You know, I, I grew up in California, but I, I gave it up for Lent, and uh, I I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of of kids 
in my schools and and because where I lived in Fresno was was a huge area for Southeast Asian immigrants mm. to resettle, and they, they a lot of it. What I was told is that the climate was one of the reasons why, um, because yeah. of the climate in the uh, Central San Joaquin Valley, and I, I noticed that a lot of the parents did not speak English, mm-hmm. and the kids were often the ones who were, you know, like you're saying, were the ones who said, you know, pushed forward and said, there's someone at the door, go talk to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or, or, uh, let's go to the store. You talk to the cashier or you talk to this person or you. And so it was always the kids who were kind of getting pushed to do that. Uh, and the parents didn't. And I even had some instances where like, uh, the parents refused to speak their native language. Mm in the house and they didn't want the kids doing it. They wanted the kids learning English and they were trying to force themselves to learn English. Yeah. Uh, and so it was like, I, 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 you know, at the time I didn't think anything of it cause I'm just a kid myself looking back on it now. It's like, wow, you're, you're denying those kids your culture essentially. Yeah. When we grew up, so uh, we're Nigerian, but from a tribe with it, um, from the Isan tribe. Um, and so we speak a very specific Isan is our language. Um, and that was a that was something my parents had to navigate. Yeah, I didn't grow up speaking it. They did not teach me. Um, my brothers, my siblings, older siblings were born there, so they spoke it to some extent. The language of instruction in Nigeria is English, so that was their main language. But um, yeah, when we got here, you know, kids kids can be cruel. You know, you, you have an accent, oh, yeah. especially you know the time yeah. we came. You have an accent. You're different. Um, and my parents decided that me, I was born here. This they were just like, don't worry about it. You know, you're in this new culture. Navigate this new space. Um, yeah, so I, I, I had friends with similar backgrounds that kind of had a similar situation and it's, there's pros and cons. It's something I think every immigrant family has to decide of how much of their culture they're going to bring with them. I'll throw it out there that, that even, even within America, it can be kind of strange because Mm -hmm. I I have some cousins who were born in, uh, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, or as we say, Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, moved to California and they had Southern accents and they were relentlessly teased right. about their Southern accents. And so they, the kids actively changed their accents. Like they worked to speak differently so that they weren't, you know, talking y'all this, y'all that, and blah, 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 uh, because they were, they were being tortured. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I, I want to give the opportunity to kind of shift the conversation a little bit because I feel like we've How gone to, to a heavy place, but an important place. But I don't want to neglect the fact that, you know, the creative process can also involve a lot of joy and a lot of discovery and, and opportunities to make choices and things that are really fulfilling. So for you, what, what is the joy of, the, of writing and now sharing with the world your novella? Like where, how did it give you opportunities to do things, you know, that gave you real pleasure and excitement? Yeah, so this novella, I I really genuinely believed when writing it, it would never be published. It's so um, I grew up on fantasy. I mean, I know what a fantasy novel looks like or fought a fantasy story. And in some ways, this um, replicates that, and in some ways, it doesn't. And in the ways it doesn't, I was like, nah, nobody's ever gonna. <laughs> this is not readable. Um, I. <laughs> I like so my intersection of interests are like epic fantasy and psychological thrillers. 
this is not a psychological thriller, but the aspect of psychological thrillers where you there's a moment where you realize that this story isn't quite the story you thought it was, that to me is um, the most alluring thing to me about storytelling at this point in my life. Like I need to, any I, any book I enjoy for the most part, like any movie I watch, even some some songs I listen to, like that feeling of like, wait, 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 wait. I, you know, I really thought we were going in this direction, but there's this, not even explicitly made, but like this kind of subtle feeling that this is not, all is not well, right? This is not going the way I thought it was going. I love that feeling. It's a slight discomfort, but I love sitting in that. And it's to me like, the driving engine of tension in stories that I enjoy. So that was a big joy for me was to, you know, it, it has to be, it's threading a needle, right? It's, it has to be very delicately done of making the reader uncomfortable, but not too uncomfortable and making them kind of like squint a little at your story, but not like close their eyes to it. Maybe to complete that yeah. metaphor. <laughs> but like, yeah. yeah. You're, you're talking about that moment uh, when the voice in your head tells you to stop building the weird machine that it's always talking about and says, jan, jan, jan. <laughs> yes, yeah. that exact moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, um, it is kind of cool to, in your, you know, they, they, it's, it's an old saw at this point that, like, you should write the book that you wish you could read. Yeah. That, like, whatever book it is that, like, you go to a bookstore or a library and you're like, damn, I was hoping for this, but it's not quite that. I'd be like, well, you got to fill that space on the shelf is sort of a it's, – it's almost a trope at this point, but a good one, I think. Yeah, because we're getting more of that now. We're getting more yeah. of those books that, yeah. that people always said, you know, I never saw what I wanted to see in the stories. I never saw that. And now suddenly we're getting that, Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the literary world is better for it. I mean, having yeah. all – you know, I say that as an adult. I remember, you know, when I was younger, I read very differently. I wanted – I had less of a tolerance for strangeness and newness because I was, I was getting into storytelling. But at this point in my life, yeah, I really need stories that yeah. feel particularly written. Sure. And I think as much as the world of genre literature sometimes likes to pat itself on the back for being, we're the imaginative ones, mm-hmm. we're the escapist ones, we're the ones who envision new realities and new futures. We do definitely have a quality where we're a little bit like, well, here's our sectioned plate and we put our chicken nuggies over here right. and our corn over here and our applesauce here. And oh, look, the whole meal is yellow. Um, and so <laughs> to some extent, our imagination in a mainstream level looks like the diet of a, of, of, of a preschooler, mm. right? It's like these, mm. are, these are the things that we have decided, going back to what you said a moment ago, Moses, about like not having an, an appetite for, for new stuff. Right. Um, like we, keep, we keep saying we have an appetite for new stuff, but then somebody does a reboot of this or, you know, they just uh, actually in the, in the patron feed on our Facebook page, Patrick just shared that is it HBO has licensed – a bunch of stuff. Someone licensed no, a bunch Warner, of more. Warner, Warner Brothers. Warner, Warner Brothers has signed a deal with New Line Cinema to make new Lord of the Rings movies. I saw that because that's what we need, man. We and, need and, the world's just starving for it. And, um, and it's yeah. it's it's got to be a licensing thing because New Line has the licensing for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they want to do stuff around that licensing so they don't have to pay for something else. Right. Sure. Sure. And so. I mean, so we're gonna get it. We're gonna get a buddy cop film with the two blue wizards <laughs> oh, that we never actually saw in the movies. Nice, right? For yeah. real. That'll that'll just that's definitely that's a pain point really in the discourse. Yeah. We've been hungering <laughs> yeah. for that for a long time. We're gonna get a, think, We're gonna get a. We're gonna get a. Hold on. We're gonna get a twelve season HBO Max show about Tom Bombadil. God help me, man. Um, it could. I mean, I. 
The origin of Tom Pompadour. This is going to be like the thing where I thought I was joking about stealing peanut butter sandwiches, and you're gonna you're gonna make yeah. it real. Don't mm-hmm. do not speak this into being, Patrick. Louise. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna get it. We're gonna we're gonna get some sort of escort series set inside the Lord of the Rings, where uh, like an old character has to escort a child somewhere to yeah. be safe, sure. and it's gonna sure. star Pedro Pascal. <laughs> Well, I think by, by 2035, we figured out that all filmography of yep. all kinds will be Pedro Pascal be, yep. being the reluctant yep. father of something. Yeah, yep. um, He's going to be like ushering the brave little toaster uh, through. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a thing. Um, but I, So we, we, on the subject of joy and kind of doing things different and making your own book here, got a little selfishly excited by your bio talking about having a martial arts background. Oh, yeah. Before I was an English teacher, I was a martial arts instructor. And I was actually just at a con a few weeks ago where one of the panels I was on was about writing fight scenes yeah. and, you know, what what goes into that. And we had an interesting array of different people who were on that panel. Um, and so how did how does that as an avocation kind of get to feed into the work that you're doing in your in your writing? Yeah, I, um, that's oh, I didn't know you had a martial arts background. That's awesome. Can I, what did you instruct? Uh, Taekwondo and Hapkido. Nice. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, Korean stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you're probably at a much higher level than me too. I'm a martial artist in uh, enthusiasm, more so practice these days. I'm getting old and out of shape. But um, yeah, I so I grew up in Las Vegas. So I spent some time as a mixed martial arts journalist. Um, I, grew, I spent a lot of time around the UFC. I hopped from we moved a lot as a kid, so I would hop from gym to gym and discipline to discipline. I think my first discipline was, you know, like karate when I was a kid. I did Jeet Kune Do for a while. I've done very mm-hmm. briefly capoeira. Uh, I spent most of my time now in Muay Thai. I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like I've done a lot of random yeah, stuff all over. So, um, but I think one thing is that I enjoy writing hand-to-hand combat. It's Weapons are cool. They're great. I love them. But like hand-to-hand, there's a visceralness to it. There is a, um, you know, and any, you know, Sword fights can be very visceral. I think a lot of authors do a great job with that. Um, but yeah, there's something to me about hand-to-hand. It's just person against person. It's unmediated and it's very raw. And and I think what I bring from having a martial arts background and brief like combat sports background is the efficiency of expertise in a fight. I think like this whole, I mean, you, you see, if you see Olympic fencing, it does not look like a sword fight. <laughs> like it's, no. it's very you know, faint heavy and very footwork heavy. And then when the strike comes, that's a wrap. And so, and obviously that's because of the point system to some extent, but I think in a real fight, when two very high level people are, are fighting, it's very efficient. That's the whole point of training is to do things efficiently. And they often end, especially in a street fight, very quickly, very brutally. And it, it's, that's kind of what fights look like as opposed to this like Hollywood elegant, there's a rhythm, there's a dance, but yeah, the choreography is just on a fundamentally different level. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not primarily a, a fight, you know, book. That's not what it's about. So I feel like I have even more space to make those fights very quick and, and brutal. Um, mm-hmm. Cause that's not the main, you know, if you want to read, a fight book you want to spend some time in the in a fight choreography but if, if you're reading this book for the mystery of the ajungo or to watch tutu's emotional journey then the fights just come these like quick punctuations that either elevate tension or, or resolves a conflict and i really did enjoy writing them that way yeah yeah i mean it serves ah. the narrative to approach it that way too because mm-hmm. i can't imagine that 
almost 13-year-old Tutu is really eager to throw down on this journey where he is all alone <laughs> traveling in extremely dangerous conditions. Right. Yeah. 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 I will throw it out there. If you've been to a, a convention in recent years, there's there's those groups that are are dressing up as uh, Jedi and Sith, mm-hmm. and yeah. have the lightsabers that you can actually fight with, and they do. Yeah. I, I just bring it up because it's to your point. It's beautiful choreography, mm-hmm. the way that they that they kind of do those exhibition lightsaber battles. It's really neat. It's really. Neat. I, you know, yeah. I, as a kid, I spent a lot of time uh, washing and waxing my mom's car, and it did nothing for me <laughs> as far as martial arts are concerned. Yeah. So the movies really lie. disappointing. The movies lie. <laughs> <laughs> No, but like seriously, in the, in the entertainment world, the, one of the things we talked about actually on that panel about writing fight scenes was um, as consumers mm-hmm. of media where combat happens and stuff, I think all of us especially those of us who are a little bit more educated and have a little bit more personal experience with physical confrontation and and fight training and whatnot, look at the way fights are portrayed in media. And we're sort of torn between kind of enjoying it and appreciating the the level at which it's happening and also being just yanked out of the narrative by that is you could, you would never stand up after that or like (laughs) no one would ever choose to do that. So like what kind of things when you're, trying to enjoy something mm-hmm. just like are going to take you right out of that fight scene. I love, I love these sorts of questions. Yeah. N- nowadays, like I, I like the idea of Rocky and Creed. I cannot watch those films. Mm-hmm. They don't look like boxing matches oh. to me. They look like actors mm-hmm. doing punchy up. Like it's, it's just so far removed from what a boxing match looks like. So I, I can't watch those in general though. I mean, I grew up on Hong Kong Kung Fu films to some extent. So those ones always still look dope to me. They just do. They look cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Some more than others. And there, I know for a while, especially like there was this kind of push to modernize the fighting systems in some of them where there was a whole bunch with um, Donnie Yen. Why can't I remember? Donnie Yen. Yes, Donnie Yen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he did a few that were like more Muay Thai based or mixed martial arts based or jujitsu based in some way. So that was cool to see. But um, yeah, I, I think one thing that takes me out is this cleanliness. Like I don't need to see a very clean fight scene where like every strike is landing and every dodge is, I mean, there's a, there's a beauty in that, but I think if it's too clean, I think if nobody's slipping, uh, no, no two punches are landing at the same time. Like eventually I start to, Mm -hmm. it looks like a dancing to me. It looks like a waltz, you know, which is, there's a pleasure yeah. in that too. I like watching dancing, but it's not the same pleasure of watching a fight scene. Yeah, I, I, I have always enjoyed Jackie Chan. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and because even though it's it's ridiculously choreographed, it's also ridiculously choreographed to be messy. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's like he he's trying to do something, and bam, he gets smacked in the back of the head, and down he goes. Right. You know, but he has to get back up and, and like, there's just all that kind of stuff. I, I remember those, those same Hong Kong movies that you're talking about. Like I, Black Belt Theater, I remember was a thing on, uh, on like syndicated TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the, and then they, they started just making like direct to video movies here mm-hmm. and like, oh God, Canon was one of the, the studios that did a lot of these. Yeah. And I just remember there was this dude, it was the first time I ever saw anything like this at all. Like I was watching a lot of those movies and this guy shows up and he's got the two sticks. 
Yeah. And and it was a white guy, but he was like a some white guy, martial artist guy here in America. And he just had these two sticks and he started hammering away on someone and I lost it. I couldn't, I had never seen anything like that before in my life. And, and that was like his whole shtick. Yeah. Right. Was that he, he was a weapons guy. His shtick was, was the extremist was stick. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. see what and you he, did there. Oh my God. He, yeah. I just remember thinking at the time that that was brutal. I'd probably watch it now and go, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, a screen is a brutal, brutal martial art. I, uh, I very, had a very, very brief amateur kickboxing career and it was this mishmash of fights on the card and there were stick fights there was a scream of fights on the card and uh they were fully armored up and those guys got punished more than any other martial arts practitioners mm-hmm. there's mma fights so there was kickboxing fast. and they were swelts and it was brutal yeah they're so fast crazy quick with those sticks mm-hmm. I, I just holy crap yeah i'm not cut holy out for that <laughs> it's a different no. world yeah no that's it, no. it is it is Fundamentally, way back when we first started this piece of the conversation, you mentioned like the hand-to-hand combat being kind of your jam more mm-hmm. than as much as weapons are cool. Um, you know that that the hand-to-hand is sort of where it's at for you. And I think for me that the hand-to-hand is interesting because we all have bodies, right? Yeah. They'll be shaped a little different. They'll have different strengths and weaknesses to them and whatnot. But there are so many different ways that groups of human beings have looked at their own bodies and said, how do I use this as a weapon? Yeah. And have come up with such ridiculously <laughs> different answers to that question. Mm-hmm. And some of them, like if you, if you do your homework and kind of trace it back, like it really does have a lot to do with culture and with um, like actual, you know, land structures and stuff like like fun fact, like one of the reasons that Kung Fu uses relatively little in the way of flying kicks and things outside of like your sort of Hong Kong opera kind of treatments and stuff is that most Kung Fu was developed in highly mountainous areas where there's a lot of rocky re- terrain. You don't want to be off your feet a whole lot mm. because the the chances that the feet, that your feet would come down in some space that is not going to support you and is not level ground was much higher than yeah. in another space where, you know, you could kind of count on more level ground and therefore you could afford to split kind of hand and foot technique. Um, and so it's just sort of cool. And yeah. it's, it's exciting to see authors being able to work in their personal passions and their cultural backgrounds and their imaginations. And so we can kind of get away from that three section plate with our, with our chicken nuggies (laughs) and and do something, do something a little different. I I think one aspect of, of fight scenes or whatever that I'm going to talk about what pulls me out of it. I think in general, um, I, I saw this in an interview with George R. R. Martin talking about the difference between action and violence and how action movies basically, show you all the flash of violence without showing you the result of it, right? Where he says, like, it's two cars racing, they bump each other, and one flips and explodes and burns on fire, and then you keep driving on. That's action. But if the camera were to pan into the car and show the person frantically trying to get their seatbelt off while they're being burned alive, that's violence, right? And I think I think there's obviously value in action. There's plenty of value in action. But I, I, I don't like the idea of audiences getting desensitized to the realities of violence, yeah, um, and to acknowledge the violence. Yeah, I think that's important. And so I think for me, when I write fight scenes and when I consume fight scenes, I'm, if there's too much action and there's no respect for the violence occurring, I think that's what pulls me out. And so in Lies of the Edge and Go, yeah. especially given the context, you know, it's all contextual. Jackie Chan's, you know, we're, we want you to slap somebody with a salmon. We don't necessarily need to see like blood gushing out of their face. So um, 
Yeah, and but in the Rise of the Jungo, it's, it veers much more toward the violence than the action. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's it's also uh, just worth noting that in in Hollywood specifically, uh, the car, ex, you know bumping each other and one exploding is a, is that coveted PG 13 that the movie wants and showing the person burning alive in the car is an R. Yep. Yeah. You won't get, you won't, you know, and and then you're, you're limiting your audience and you can't do that. Yeah. We're kind of coming full circle with that though. Cause we, we started this conversation with, you know, honoring the voices of young people in difficult situations without assuming that a young person's story has to follow the YA scriptures and it, it kind of all is of a piece, right? That we, we know that we, we live in a world where the creators are incentivized or maybe not even incentivized, but sort of like forced to put their work within certain rubrics and categories mm-hmm. or the people who publish their work are forced to put it into those rubrics and categories in some way. And that those rubrics and categories exert a downward pressure into what people feel like they're allowed to do and, and so, whether it's a matter of, you know, I got, I got my one F bomb and that's as far as I can go yeah. for this whole film. Or if it's a matter of, you know, balancing the action with the violence or deciding that you're going to occlude one in the interests of the other, it's all part of that sort of larger complexity of there's, there's the audience, there's the creator, but there's this whole system that sort of is an intermediary between them. Mm. And it it has its own vocabulary that it wants to sort of exert to kind of control what passes between those two things. For sure. Yeah. And I feel like there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a screenwriter or I don't work in these other mediums, but I feel like there's less of that in fiction. I yeah. At least I feel pretty free. You know, I have a YA novel here too, and I do veer more toward action than violence there, but you know, I can, you can get away with a bit. And I, I think something about a book, whether because it's not visual. And so it, it's, you know, it's up to your own imagination, the, how bad this gets. But, um, I feel very free in the fiction, uh, medium in a way that mm-hmm. maybe I, I wouldn't feel as free in other mediums. Yeah. 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 It's fair. Well, and that's, that's one of the reasons why so many authors, uh, started moving into YA mm. because they found that they could do more there without it necessarily being labeled a certain way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But now there's Twitter. So that is, I feel like yeah, that is now yeah. that has become our third party, like force. Of... Great unequalizer. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to miss the opportunity on the subject of, of having your voices and being able to, to speak for yourself here mm. to do our picks of the week. So. Oh, that's, oh that's you want to do picks of the week. I do. Okay, okay. Picks of the week. Hmm. So, Patrick, I know this is hard for you, but can you model good behavior with picks of the week and show Moses how it's done? Probably. So, uh, this week I am, I'm two episodes in on Picard season three. And I am ridiculously enjoying it. They have spent some money. The they it looks and I I think I posted this on the on the patrons uh, group. It looks gorgeous. The ships, the dry dock, uh, the cities, the planets, just the stuff. Like it just looks like a feature film. Like they spent some money on it. My gosh, mm. uh, it's just looking amazing. And 
Uh, I'm going to spoil something for people who, who haven't seen it. Um, Jean-Luc Picard is in it. So, so just so you know. <laughs> uh, that's as far as I'll go with some season But I'm, shade, right? I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying it. I, I am seeing, uh, I am seeing uh, homages to Wrath of Khan. I am seeing, uh, you know, even even uh, the motion picture, uh, a lot of next generation stuff, some Deep Space Nine stuff. Like, I feel like they they did the first two seasons and they just did some sort of search online and said, you know, fan service for Picard. What do people want? And they started just <laughs> plugging this show full of it. My gosh, there's so much stuff in there. It's not even funny. Like callbacks to old episodes, uh, original, next gen, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, you name it. It's all in there. I think there's even some stuff for Enterprise. God, mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, it's just all in there. So uh, I'm I'm really, really enjoying it. If, if, if the first two seasons didn't do it for you and it just wasn't there because it didn't feel like next generation, it didn't feel like... Uh, the kind of Star Trek that you wanted, I think you would enjoy this ridiculously. Uh, even the music, like the music is they're they're using little bits and pieces from past movies and shows and stuff, and they're just putting it in there. Uh, I can't tell you which ones without spoiling stuff, but you hear it and you know, you hear the song and you know, you just know if you're a Star Trek fan, you, you, you recognize that music. So Picard season three, it's on Paramount plus. Uh, I'm sure between episodes two and three, they'll raise the prices or something stupid. So, uh, yeah. Just throwing it out. Par for the course. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. How about you, Moses? Same. For the same reasons. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I would offer nothing on this podcast. He said. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was going to um, say, you, you plugged your ears during the, the spoiler comments. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> now that I know Picard's in it. Um, (laughs) so yeah, so, okay. So as I said, I'm a big psychological thriller fan. One of my favorite films ever is in that genre and is little known and it's cool, like gorgeously plotted. It's a film called Coherence. It came out like 2016, 2017. I feel like a shout out to my brother for introducing me to it. I'd never heard of it. It's like small indie film. One of the stars of it is Xander from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, whose name I, oh, I know his real name, Nicholas, but now Nick, Nick, Nicholas um, Brendan. Nicholas yes, Brendan. Nicholas Brendan. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does a great job. The rest of the cast, they're like somewhat recognizable, but it's an incredible film. I don't want to spoil literally anything, but the premise is that a spoiler? The premise is that uh, yeah, so there is this like asteroid or comet that that is flying overhead and it's creating kind of disturbances on the ground. The first one is that it knocks out all the power and like all of the electricity essentially. Um, and then the second is it has much other, much more mysterious impacts that I think maybe are spoilers. And so I shouldn't say them, but it is amazing. I watched it a lot when I was writing Liza the Ajungo. I took notes on its plot structure. It does like the slow reveal and the constantly complicating uh, explanations very well. That's really cool. I love a good ambitious film. Mm-hmm. Nice. And and I like to see that uh, Nicholas Brendan is still working because I know he's had a lot of issues personally. In his it's life. been right. it's been a journey for him. Yeah. yeah, the movie he's had a lot of problems. The film discusses. The, I mean, you know, he's not he's playing a character. He's not playing Nicholas Brendan. But yeah, they yeah. mention Roswell in the in the movie. It's uh, 
yeah, it's it's really interesting how they use him. I, 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 that sounds amazing. I do have one more thing that you reminded me of that I want to throw out for Picard. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is a this is not a spoiler because it's in the trailer. It, it, Jonathan Frakes is in this. He's <laughs> right, right, yeah. and it, there's a thing. There's a moment in Stargate SG One, the series, where somehow behind the scenes they had a conversation and they're like let richard dean anderson just be richard fucking dean anderson let just let him do whatever the fuck he wants and the show got amazing like his humor was in it it was just clear at some point someone said we're gonna have frakes back he's gonna be Riker. turn him loose and they're just letting him be the most Riker that you have ever seen. He's just seen getting Riker. in and out of every chair really weird. He, like, he all is, the time. <laughs> he is chewing up every scene he's in. Nice. He is so amazing in this. If no other reason, just go 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 see it for that. I mean, my okay. God. All right. Frakes is being I don't know if he's being Frakes or if he's being Riker, but either way, it's it's absolutely amazing. So I had to throw that in there. Nice. So I feel like um, like Moses and I are both doing like a, a little bit of a way back um, pick of the week thing here. This is not a, a recent novella. Well, I mean, I guess it kind of is. It's uh, 2016. Um, but I, I, it's very much on my mind because I just got done teaching it for like the billionth time because I love the hell out of it uh, this week. It's The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. Nice. Um, and I I generally don't have a lot of use for Lovecraftian narratives unless they're Lovecraftian narratives that are kind of like pushing against the Lovecraftian narrative. Yeah. And the reason that I, 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 I probably have even chosen this as a pick of the week in a previous episode, and I don't care. I'm going to pick it again. <laughs> um, and the, the reason that I love The Ballad of Black Tom so deeply is the way that it makes no apologies for using the, the framework of Lovecraft's horror as a tool for sort of looking at how racism is its own kind of experience of cosmic horror. Mm. It's his own experience of like not being believed and having to choose between which is worse indifference or, or actual, you know, directed hateful persecution Mm. and realizing that cosmic indifference is actually less scary um, is the idea that, that this thing that, um, you know, had Howard Phillips Lovecraft up at night, twisting and turning in his bed, cosmic indifference is the worst thing ever to be like, actually, no, it's preferable to, for, for some people's current conditions is such a light bulb thing for me to get to share with my students uh, and to kind of see them go on that journey uh, with the character who eventually becomes Black Tom that I just, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, It is a novella. And so it's a solid afternoon read. uh, If anybody's looking for something to kind of um, challenge them a bit, uh, I think about actually your, what you were talking about in terms of the distinction between violence and action. And it's definitely a book that has some action in it, but it, it's very conscious of its violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. it cares much more about violence than it does about action. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is also in service to, to what Laval has chosen as his mission there. It's a great read. Yeah. I love that novella. It's a very good, yeah. very, very good pick. All right. So we have really just, we've got a chalk pack full episode right here. It has been a great deal of fun talking to you, Moses. Where can people find you, find Eliza the Anjungo, and find everything that's coming out 
from you since. Yeah. Well, we got, I know that the second one's in a year from now too. So it know, is runway. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I have a website, MosesOsetotomi.com. You can find me there. I am on every social media. Unfortunately, I need to purge that. But yeah, I'm most active on Twitter and Instagram. I'm trying to be better at TikTok. Um, but yeah, my books are sold everywhere. Support your local bookstores. Make use of your local libraries. Um, if neither of those are convenient for you, obviously Barnes and Noble and Amazon. But yeah, sure. Can 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 you dance? Um, you mean well, well, will I or can I? Can you? I mean, you know, I try. Yeah. So so there's a there's a uh, oh I am so terrible at names at remembering people's names, but there's an actress on Star Trek: Strange New Worlds who plays the security officer Christina Chong I think mm-hmm. her and her twin do these ridiculously well choreographed dance things on TikTok and oh, nice. the reason I bring it up is because her character is so serious on the show and then oh, to see yeah. her just like having so much fun doing these dances with her twin yeah uh it is it's a nice little offset um, so that's why I ask if you can I dance. Will, apparently if you can dance, that's, that's TikTok. I will say, and maybe I'll regret this financially career wise later. <laughs> I will never be dancing on TikTok, but, <laughs> but I have gone back on things I've said before. So we'll see. <laughs> I remember, and she doesn't remember this Gail Carragher years ago said, uh, she would never do, uh, pictures of an animal on social media, like her cat. She's yep. never going to do that. And now that's like most of it. I know. I know. I probably doomed myself. <laughs> oh my gosh. I shouldn't have said it. I'm definitely going to be doing something <laughs> by next week, probably. Yeah, it's fine. It's Your secret's safe with us. <laughs> Thanks. So. Yeah. Thanks yeah so cut, cut that part. Cut that promise out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take that out. That's why that won't even make the episode. Perfect. I promise. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thanks having me. for joining me. us. Yeah, I appreciate oh, it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What on earth? Hey. Hey. Oh, oh. Hi, Patrick. Tracy, what are you doing to the bumper? Uh, fortifying it. Duh. This is because we just talked to Keith Amon about defending your lair. And... And I started thinking about that time beyond the trope, tried to take over. Yeah, I... I act cool about that, but I guess it kind of got to me after all. You do realize that building a... what? What is this? It's a palisade. Right. You realize that physical fortifications are not a way of protecting and preserving the podcast into the future, right? I suppose. Oh, oh, what about weapons? You're kidding. You have two Hugo Awards. Those trophies are very pointy and probably excellent for close quarters combat. Oh my God, you're not kidding. You can't tell me that you don't look at those trophies sometimes and think about how good it would feel to just poke them right into Sean Duke from Skiffy and Fanty, huh? Huh? My therapist says I need to give my worst impulses space to be entertained intellectually but not acted upon. (laughs) I would totally act on that. But there's a problem. I don't have a Hugo Award trophy. I don't even have one of the tiny stabity nomination pins. Patrick. Patrick. Why are you grabbing me by the collar? Why am I narrating about it? 
This is audio entertainment, Patrick. Just give the cues. Patrick, I need that Hugo trophy to help you defend our lair. Podcast. But layer podcast, whatever. We need to make sure the listeners know that nominating for the Hugo Awards is a great way to contribute to the SF community and honor content creators they like. Maybe even the functional nerds by nominating them for categories like best fan cast. Please let me go. Oh, sorry. Would you feel better if we also told folks that interested listeners can go to the current Worldcon Facebook page for more information? I cannot actually pronounce that name of that current page, but they're in China. Oh, or they could skip straight to finding the Chengdu Worldcon on the web at en.chengduworldcon.com. You know, you're stronger than I thought you'd be. My neck hurts. <sighs> Walk it off, Hester. Here, here's a hammer. We've got work to do. Let's take a second to talk about Beyond the Trope. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, we recommend Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle have been putting out episodes for a really long time. Not as long as me, but don't hold that against them. They have a lot of great guests, just like we do. And they put out their episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. They also have a Patreon with a bunch of extra content for backers, which is really cool. They have a Redbubble site where you can buy stuff, also cool. And I just wanted to throw it out there. Beyond the Trope, check them out. I think you'll like them. So there. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? Okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.